Due to the graphic nature of this haunted place, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations of ableism, mental illness, harm against minors, and discussions of eugenics and sexual violence. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Octavia thought the reporter was cute, but she didn't show him and his crew everything, only enough to start a conversation. These children needed help. They needed more money, more room, more time and attention than she could ever give them. Letchworth Village had 2,000 more patients than it was supposed to. The reporter told her he understood. She was a saint for trying. She blushed and fixed her feathered hair. Then, the child beside them screamed, an unearthly sound that skated up and down her spine like a venomous spider. Octavia jumped, but the reporter didn't flinch. She commended his fortitude, but he only looked at her strangely. He hadn't heard anything. Octavia's face hardened. These children were in distress. Ignoring that wasn't courage under fire. It was cruel and unkind. The child screamed again. The reporter was even more confused. He had no idea what Octavia was reacting to. Octavia didn't like this joke. She walked him and his camera team toward the door. The reporter protested. The noise chased them down the hallway. Octavia promised that she would help in just a moment, but the reporter wasn't moving fast enough. She shoved the crew out the door and turned back, ready to console. But no one was there. The hallway was empty. The screaming hadn't stopped. Welcome to Haunted Places, a ParCast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. You can find all episodes of Haunted Places for free on Spotify. And every Tuesday, make sure to check out Urban Legends. These special episodes of Haunted Places are available exclusively on Spotify. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to New York's Letchworth Village, a now-abandoned home for the mentally ill, and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. We'll take our first steps through the crumbling remains of Letchworth after this. The architecture of Letchworth Village was meant to evoke Thomas Jefferson's Monticello. Built in 1911 in Thiels, New York, the 2,362-acre Hudson Valley Estate was a state institution for the segregation of the epileptic and feeble-minded. A small stream known as Miniciano Creek bisects the property, dividing it between homes for boys and girls, ranging from children to teenagers. Letchworth Village was presented as the paragon of care and research in its time. It was entirely self-sufficient, thanks to the large farm on the property. The young patients tended the fields and animals and worked as servants in their caregivers' homes. Others were given vocational training in carpentry, welding, and shoe repair. It was its own ecosystem, which also meant that secrets were easier to keep. 
the attendants were screaming again. Shoshana pulled her threadbare pillow over her head, trying to drown them out. They did this every night, drank themselves silly, and then yelled for hours. If she was lucky, one of the superiors would come and break things up. She was rarely lucky. She peeked her head out from under the pillow to see if Emily was doing okay. But the new girl's bed was empty. No one was supposed to be out of bed. Bad things happened to the children who left their rooms at night. Shoshana didn't move. She prayed, watching the empty pillow until her eyelids grew heavy, waiting for Emily to return. But by the time her eyes closed, the sheets still lay vacant in the dark. As always, the children were roused before dawn for chores. Shoshana was somehow relieved to find Emily's large eyes inches from her own as she woke. Emily was holding a small cloth doll in her hands. Shoshana asked if it was from home. Emily shook her head slowly. She said she had found it. Shoshana told her to put it back. Emily set her jaw firmly. Shoshana tried to remind herself that Emily didn't know yet. She didn't know everyone would try to take it from her, how rare it was to have something to hold on to. Maybe Shoshana was being overly cautious. The doll wasn't much to look at anyways. It was smeared with dirt and blood. One of its eyes had been torn off. The cloth had faded to a urine yellow. Maybe someone had thrown it away. Emily dragged the doll behind her as she worked with Shoshana in the doctor's house. His family had everything they weren't allowed to have. Soft sheets, fluffy beds, nice clothes. When she entered the building in the morning, she couldn't help feeling like Emily's new doll, broken and out of place. At bed check, Shoshana watched as Emily carefully hid the doll under her bed. She may have been new, but even she knew the attendants stole everything. Shoshana self-consciously rubbed at the fading bruises on her arms. Bruises the same attendants had given her. It was inevitable that Emily would get treated the same way at some point. But Shoshana would protect her as long as she could. Shoshana woke once again to Emily's big brown eyes. The little girl was terribly dirty, aside from the pristine new dress she was wearing. Emily insisted that she had found it, but Shoshana narrowed her eyes. She needed to know the truth. She couldn't protect her if she didn't know who Emily was stealing from. Emily hesitated. Shoshana pulled the dress off her and stood up, using the extra three inches she had over Emily for extra intimidation. Emily sighed and took Shoshana's hand. She wouldn't tell Shoshana, but she could show her. The two girls snuck out of the dormitory, avoiding the night attendants. Emily led her toward the woods, her small hand in Shoshana's large one. The off-duty workers were so much louder out in the open, where there were no walls to drown out the sounds. She could hear their argument in full now, followed by the sound of a fist hitting skin. She knew that sound well, and she hated it. Shoshana covered her ears, but the sound kept repeating. One of the attendants would look even rougher than she did tomorrow. They walked deeper into the woods. Twigs and rocks dug into Shoshana's feet. She would have grabbed her shoes beforehand, but she thought they were going to one of the other cottages. 
Shoshana asked Emily who lived out here. Was there some creature luring children into the forest, like in fairy tales? Emily said she didn't know. Another riddle. Shoshana didn't like this. The small hairs on her arms were standing up. She was cold and her feet were bleeding. She wanted to go back to the cottage. There, she could at least recognize the monsters on sight. The area was untamed. Anything could be out here. They would never be able to get help if something happened. Emily led them through the woods until they were at a small clearing. Shoshana didn't know why they were stopping until she felt the freshly turned dirt underneath her feet. It was like a vegetable plot, but smaller, much smaller, child-sized. There was another behind that, and another behind that. Hundreds of rows disappearing into the darkness. A small metal stake sat at the head of each one, engraved with a series of numbers. Was this what happened to the children that went to the hospital but never came back? Emily was on her knees, digging around in the dirt. Shoshana tried to stop her, but the girl kept digging. She pulled up a piece of an arm with a small woven bracelet attached. Emily removed the bracelet and threw the arm back into the dirt. Emily held out the bracelet to show her, eyes glittering. Shoshana told Emily they couldn't do that. You shouldn't steal from the dead. She felt eyes on her back. Someone was watching them. Shoshana braced her the harsh grip of the attendants to carry them back to their beds. But nothing came. Emily's eyes had gone hazy. She shifted her focus to something in the trees behind her. Shoshana turned around, slowly. Several dozen eyes stared back at her from the darkness. Nearly all of the children were smaller than her. Perhaps children was the wrong word. Could corpses be children? She'd never heard of such a thing. One of them coughed. Their darkly colored lungs pushed through their chest as they wheezed. Emily stood watching, clutching the bracelet to her nightgown. Shoshana slowly reached for it. Emily wrenched it away from her. Shoshana whispered that the children wanted their things back, but Emily shook her head vigorously. Shoshana hissed louder, demanding Emily return the bracelet. Emily shook her head. Dead children didn't need baubles, she insisted. Shoshana held her breath. Then, the children screamed. The noise was unearthly, a cacophony of misshapen creatures screeching in primal need. Shoshana covered her ears and squeezed her eyes shut, but it wasn't enough. She felt something wet begin to trickle from her ear canal and down her jawline. She never should have asked where Emily was getting the trinkets from. She wanted to be back in her bed. The noise stopped. Shoshana uncovered her ears and looked around. The children were gone. And so was Emily. To this day, persons with disabilities are often infantilized and marginalized even by their own families. 
Letchworth Village was considered to be at the height of innovation in the first half of the 20th century, but it was still a microcosm of American society's discomfort with disability, both mental and physical. At the time of its founding, Letchworth's treatment methods were motivated by the flawed philosophy of eugenics. In a 1920 report, the superintendent of Letchworth Village wrote that some are going to marry and reproduce more feeble-minded delinquents, but his ultimate goal was to parole their population, rehabilitating them and releasing them back into society. This was a common path for many patients at Letchworth because a fair amount of them weren't feeble-minded at all. Some were simply defiant children. Others were born out of wedlock or had physical disabilities. Their only common trait was not being wanted. Many children left Letchworth, but others weren't so lucky. Overcrowding and poor hygiene led to rampant spread of infection and disease, including pneumonia and tuberculosis. The dead were buried on the property in what almost looked like garden plots. There were no headstones, only small metal stakes no names. That way, no one would see a surname they recognized and wonder how a good family could have a child end up here. The graves are marked with record numbers instead. There are over 900 of them. Up next, we shift our focus to a worker at Letchworth who undertakes a sinister errand. Hi, it's Greg. Have you heard the newest Spotify original from Parcast? It's called Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers, and it uncovers the most damning details surrounding history's most high-profile leaders. Every Tuesday through the 2020 election, host Ashley Flowers shines a light on the darker side of the American presidency. From torrid love affairs and contemptible corruption to shocking cover-ups and even murder, She'll expose the personal and professional controversies you may never knew existed. You'll hear some wildly true stories about presidents such as Richard Nixon, George Washington, Teddy Roosevelt, and more. Very Presidential highlights the exploits you never learned in history class, but probably should have. Family drama, personal vices, dirty secrets. These presidents may have run, but they most certainly can't hide. Follow Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the story. Letchworth Village was founded as a place to conceal and bury the shame of American parents and communities, offering a home for so-called mental defectives. This could mean mental illness, but also covered the feeble-minded, or children who exhibit developmental disabilities or perform badly on IQ tests. In 1920, the superintendent of Letchworth Village wrote, during the past 10 or 15 years, as we have found out more about mental defect, we have found that a very large percentage of people, say one to 250 or so, are mentally defective, according to intelligence tests. We've also found that there are good mental defectives and bad mental defectives, and that the good mental defectives are not more antisocial than normal persons, and that they are the rough workers of the world. The hope was that many of the patients could be mainstreamed again, but as decades passed, some remained well into adulthood. 
By 1942, Letchworth Village was continually well over its capacity by about 2,000 patients. Some staff took advantage of the lack of oversight. Accusations of abuse and neglect piled up. Photojournalist Irving Haberman publicized photographs of naked and dirty patients sleeping on mattresses on the floor. Promises were made to reform, but either the money or the will to do so never manifested. Instead, Letchworth focused on medical testing and research using their own child patients. The head of this initiative was a researcher named Dr. George Jervis. Around 1948, Jervis told immunologist Hilary Koprovsky that he could use the children as test patients for his experimental polio vaccine. And the sense of ownership the Letchworth staff had over the patients didn't end with the patient's death. Sam had been warned away from working at Letchworth. It took a lot of emotional labor to do a good job there, watching people suffering in horrible conditions. Budget cuts had made it impossible to get resources. The staff was a revolving door of people divided between deeply committed workers and those that thirsted for power. There was no way to escape the tensions. The whole town had ties to the massive farm by Miniciano Creek. He told his family and friends that he could handle it. He was a smart kid. The place needed more good hearts. He could do the work. He wanted to do the work. His first few days had been difficult, watching children shiver in the cold hallways while they waited in line for insufficient baths. They barely had enough towels for everyone, and the towels they did have were a stain to hell and back. He asked for a replacement pair of shoes for a patient, and one of the other workers laughed at him. They didn't have the budget for those kind of extravagances. Sam cried in his car before heading back home. These children deserve so much better than what they were given. It was horrifying, but he went back. They needed people like him, people who hadn't forgotten what compassion meant. As he administered haircuts to a long line of boys, a call came overhead that a girl had run off the property. Bella. Not one of Sam's charges, but he'd seen her around and once helped her find her doll. The blunt blade slipped out of his hands, leaving a tiny trail of blood down a five-year-old's head. He stammered an apology and picked up the cleanest cloth he could find to wipe the blood away. He'd been told to use the same blade for the first 50 heads as a cost-saving measure. Sam knew enough about biology to know that this might save them money, but it could cost them patience. But as usual, there was nothing he could do. His supervisors told him that finding the girl was the first priority. Sam wanted to argue, but one more look at the boy's bleeding head told him that he really wasn't qualified for this right now. He pocketed the blade, forcing whoever took over from him to use a new one. At least he'd limit the likelihood of bloodborne illness. Sam walked along the hallway under flickering fluorescent lights, trying to think over the groans of the patients. He felt for them, but he needed his wits if he was going to find this girl. The woods were big, and there were two streams, plenty of places for her to get lost and never come back. He passed by a tunnel that he'd been warned away from entering. 
One of the nicer caregivers, Sharon, had told him that the worst abuses happened in the tunnel. If you were smart, you would steer clear. Reporting it would only get you fired. Sam could swear that he heard cries of help coming from the tunnel. He called out into the dark, hoping for some sign that his ears weren't playing tricks on him. But he was met with silence. He lingered for a minute longer. When he was sure that the hall was empty, he moved on. The doctor's offices were usually empty at these hours. There were too many patients to see during the day, so Sam started going through the rooms one by one. The large desks would be easy to hide behind. He called Bella's name, but there was no answer. On tiptoe, he snuck around the desk. There was no child hiding underneath. He entered the next room. The smell of formaldehyde was overwhelming. Small slivers of gray tissue were preserved in small jars. There were hundreds of them. He'd never seen anything like it. As he got closer, he started to notice ridges in the tissue. Brains. There was no telling who these unmarked organs belonged to, but it looked wrong to see hundreds of organs lined up neatly on a shelf like canned goods. One of the jars wobbled. Sam barely managed to catch the jar as it tipped. It was frozen in his hands. The tissue didn't wobble. The glass was frigid. Why was it so cold? Formaldehyde didn't need to be stored below room temperature to make it work, and there was no means of refrigeration he could see. He set the jar back onto the shelf and waited to see if it moved again. Something wobbled on the other side of the wall. He couldn't get to it in time. Another glass jar shattered on the floor, spilling fluid and small pieces of tissue everywhere. Sam froze. He didn't know what to do, who to call. This certainly wasn't covered at orientation. Then the shelves started to shake. More and more jars tumbled to the floor. Sam began to cough. Noxious fumes filled the air around him. He lifted his shirt to his mouth to try and block what he could, but there were too many spilled jars. His eyes watered so profusely that he couldn't see. His lungs felt like they were on fire. Every inch of his exposed skin stung and burned. He bolted in the general direction of the exit. His hand banged on the metal doorknob. Sam pulled hard and the door swung open. He ran back down the hallway he'd come from earlier, egged on by the distant groaning of the patients. A line that long could only mean that they were waiting for their showers. He could cut the line to clean himself off. Some kind soul helped him get situated under the water. It seeped through his clothes and brought some minor relief to his burning skin. He waited for his lungs and eyes to clear. His vision cleared, but things weren't the way he'd left them. It was the same hospital, but it looked newer. Less crime, more light. A patient was wheeled down the hall. Sam followed along, trying to get caught up on what was happening. His co-worker told him simply that they were just following standard procedure, nothing to get excited about. The little girl was dead. That was clear from the waxy skin and the discoloration. The bloating suggested she'd been neglected or found late. Sam followed along as they went to the operating room. The doctor wasted no time. 
He didn't bother to sanitize the area or asked if anyone was ready. He drove the bone saw through the skull of a girl that couldn't be older than 12. It was only then that Sam recognized Bella. Her skull was so small. He wanted to look away, but he was frozen in place by that same unnerving cold that had coated the jar of formaldehyde. He watched the doctor carve out sections of her brain, all the while discussing lunch plans with the attending nurse. Bella wasn't a person to them. The child's eyes opened. Sam jumped backwards, but the doctor wasn't paying attention. Sam started to scream as the child got up from the table. The next moment, he was back in the shower stalls. The chemical burning slid away in the cold liquid. Pieces of degraded tissue clung to his skin before washing down the drain. He looked up. The grime was back. The decay. Dirty windows. The shivering patients were trying to understand why he would be bathing with his clothes on. Sam stepped out of the shower and continued to look for Bella, praying that his vision had only been just another nightmare in a place of nightmares. Stephen McCanny, who reportedly worked at Letchworth for over nine years, starting in 1979, has told several horror stories about the conditions at the facility, from a lack of warm clothes, to needing to reuse sanitation supplies, to physical abuse. He also tells the stories of happy ties between workers and patients, and the way that some of the staff did their best to build full lives for the patients, even in isolation. The most intriguing part of his account, though, is an anecdote about getting lost in one of Letchworth's buildings, where he claims to have stumbled onto a disturbing sight. He allegedly opened a closet to find the brains of over 150 deceased residents. They had been preserved in formaldehyde, presumably with the aim of studying possible structural causes or physical manifestations of mental disability. The room full of brains has become one of the favorite stories of modern urban explorers. Coming up, Letchworth offers up new horrors, even with its gates shut. Now back to the story. Overcrowding in New York State's mental health system truly began to peak in the 1960s. The outcry against abuse and neglect in facilities like Letchworth Village came to a head when Geraldo Rivera ran his 1972 expose, Willowbrook, The Last Great Disgrace, on an ABC affiliate. The special covered both Letchworth and the neighboring facility of Willowbrook, alleging inadequate care and physical and sexual abuse of patients. New York began a slow process to shut Letchworth Village down, moving its patients in small batches to other facilities over decades, before closing the facility completely in 1996. But the specters walking the grounds didn't seem comforted by the facility's shrinking population. There was never anything to do in Thiel's. So Shannon and Ingrid were always stuck trying to find their own fun. They took to driving around in Shannon's car, 
searching for abandoned places and strange woods to wander around in. They weren't hunting for ghosts, per se. They were really hunting interesting places to smoke their clove cigarettes in peace. Sometimes Ingrid took pictures for her Instagram. Urban decay, but make it fashion. They hadn't ever been to Letchworth Village. It felt a little obvious since it was practically in their backyard. Letchworth had been such a big part of their parents' and neighbors' lives for so long, but it had closed almost ten years before Shannon and Ingrid were born. But Shannon was running low on gas for the day, so they figured it was time to give it a try. Ivy and bushes climbed up stone steps and Jeffersonian columns, weaving their way through the eaves and roof. Ingrid picked a few blossoms to put in her hair and adjusted her jacket to pose against the half-green wall of the dining room. Shannon told her that she looked like a grunge fairy. They giggled and moved further in. The halls grew more cavernous the deeper they went. The sun was bright outside, but the peeling paint and yellow walls seemed to swallow up every light source. Shannon said it was a bit too spooky for her, and she turned to go back to the dining hall. But something crossed her path. She screeched, nearly jumping into Ingrid's arms as a dark shape with outstretched hands rushed by her. It stopped in the other room, rustling, echoing from the shadows. Ingrid shushed Shannon and poked her head around the corner. She laughed. She didn't blame the raccoon for being there. It was kind of the perfect home for a creature of the forest with an affinity for human things. Shannon stomped her designer boot, annoyed, and marched back to the dining hall. Evening fell as the girls settled into smoke. Shannon had calmed down some, but she was still grumbling about trash pandas. They stood on either side of the window, wrapped in sweaters and listening to the latest curated playlist. There were lights in the distance, bright white and floating. They moved like flashlights, but the height suggested grown men were carrying them. The two girls quickly ducked down. It was definitely men, all right, laughing. The tinkle of broken glass echoed through the woods. Shannon locked eyes with Ingrid. This was not the kind of company they wanted. She nodded toward the back door. Perhaps they could sneak away before the men got any closer. Ingrid grumbled softly to herself. Her tights were from a sample sale. There was no replacing them. She crawled forward carefully, picking her way through the debris on the floor. But then, something slammed her into the ground. Ingrid saw stars and flying dust. She blinked, eyes stinging, muscles crying in shock. She shook her head to compose herself and bent her bruised knees to try to stand back up. But something stepped on her back, ramming her into the dirty floor again. Dried leaves crunched beneath her hands. She squeaked in distress, trying to understand why Shannon would hurt her this way. But Shannon was on the other side of the room, staring at her. Invisible hands dug into Ingrid's shoulder blades. She squirmed and struggled but couldn't move. Shannon scrambled forward, glancing wildly as the sounds of the drunk men approached. She pulled on her friend. Ingrid's tights ripped. Small pricks of glass and concrete dug into her exposed skin. 
Still, the force wouldn't let go. The men were so close, she could hear conversations now. The lights danced across the empty window frames. One beam made its way towards Ingrid and Shannon. The girls froze, fearing the worst. But just before it reached Shannon's glittery sleeve, it faded away. Ingrid lifted her head. The pressure was gone. Shannon crawled to the window to peek out into the long field in front of the building. There was no one there. No lights, no sound, no shapes creeping into the distance. There had never been anyone there at all. Letchworth Village is abandoned now, a palace of urban decay, filled with photo ops as the surrounding greenery slowly reclaims the buildings. Visitors, who are required to stay on the designated paths, have described the appearance of orbs and unexplained sounds, including children's laughter and moving furniture. One investigator even reported that they were thrown to the ground and held there. Something or someone clearly doesn't want to lay still at Letchworth. Abandoned NYC's page on Letchworth Village is filled with haunting still photographs of graffiti, peeling paint, and vines climbing in through the dining hall windows. But the comment section is even more tragic. There's the usual ghost anecdote and a few arguments about whether inmate abuse occurred at all. But then there are the people looking for family members, people they knew who lived and died on the grounds of Letchworth Village left in those unmarked graves, identified only by record numbers, many of which went missing decades ago. There's a memorial there now with the names that were recovered. It's not enough. There's no better word for what happened to these invisible children than that they are lost. Lost to their families. Lost to the world. Perhaps lost to themselves. Disembodied voices are a common phenomenon on the grounds, but they're rarely happy. No children's laughter, only screams. Witnesses say Letchworth is eerie by any light, but it's in darkness when things become truly unnerving. Shadows cross doorways, footsteps carry down empty halls. Lost children, searching for something that was always denied to them, their humanity. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. And don't forget to come back on Tuesday for our Urban Legends series, available only on Spotify. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Haunted Places, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Haunted Places on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Haunted Places in the search bar. I'll see you next time. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. 
Sound design by Kenny Hobbs. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Lil D. Ritter and Jennifer Rache, with writing assistance by Greg Castro. I'm Greg Polson. Hi again, it's Greg. Before I go, I wanted to remind you to check out the new Spotify original from Parcast, Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers. Every Tuesday through the 2020 election, host Ashley Flowers shines a light on the darker side of the American presidency, exposing wildly true stories about history's most high-profile leaders. There's torrid love affairs, shocking blackmail schemes, and even murder. I can't recommend the show enough. To hear more, follow Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.